2: From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk, fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
0: It is Monday, August 1st, 2022, a brand new broadcast week, a brand new broadcast month on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. That's Monday through Friday, plus around the clock on demand, including weekends and bonus Benson, at GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you need about the program is there. The podcast is free of charge every day after the show concludes. If you don't know much about me or you're new to the show, welcome. We're very happy to have you here. I'm political editor at TownHall.com and a Fox News contributor in addition to helming this program every day. Our Twitter and Instagram handle, at Guy Benson Show. So that's pretty easy. You remember GuyBensonShow.com. You remember at Guy Benson Show. It's all right there. Here's the lineup in store. We are packed today. Brett Baier will be here. Special report anchor in studio joining me later on this hour. We'll be playing some sound from him here in just a moment. He anchored Fox News Sunday yesterday, did a very interesting interview with Senator Joe Manchin. I was on the panel yesterday on that show. Much analysis to come. Gordon Chang on China. He'll be here in the next hour, as will Dr. Nicole Sapphire on COVID, on monkeypox and more. Looking forward to that chat on two important topics. And then in our final hour, U.S. Senator Pat Toomey. Republican from Pennsylvania, he's going to join us. There is this big, angry fight where the angry, sort of irate allegation is that Republican senators, for no reason aside from partisan spite, are blocking funding for veterans' health care. Jon Stewart has been screaming about this. Democrats are saying there's blood on the hands of Republicans and they hate the veterans. The truth, as you might imagine, is much more complicated than the demagoguery would suggest. And there's a small, easy fix that needs to be made on an unrelated ancillary issue that would cause the whole bill to sail through because there's wide support for the actual issue of health care for veterans who've been exposed to toxic burn pits. That is not a partisan issue, but there is a poison pill in there. And Senator Toomey has been arguing this case now for a couple days. He is being assailed all over the place by the left. The media, of course, is playing along with the Democratic playbook, and we want to set the record straight and give you the truth, and Senator Toomey will be here to help do that coming up in our final hour out of three here on today's show. Now, I mentioned that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Democrat, was on Fox News Sunday yesterday. He was the featured guest in the A Block, the first segment of the show, touting, as he did on all the Sunday shows— this package that he was able to reach, uh, an uh, agreement on, a deal on with Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, the majority leader. Now, it's unclear whether it can pass. We don't know where Kirsten Cinema is on this from Arizona. She's been awfully quiet. There are some questions about what might happen in the House. As I said, though, last week, my guess ultimately is even if there are a few more twists and turns, I think the Democrats are going to pass this or something close to this before the midterms because of all sorts of political reasons. And they've got Manchin. like bird in the hand. They finally have him committed to something. I think if they have a chance to raise taxes and increase spending and grow the government, Democrats don't pass up that opportunity, just in general, as a rule. That's why they exist, to do those things and a few other things. But that's sort of at the very top and has been for decades. So Manchin, in that interview with Brett, and he was— pushed by a few of the other anchors on the other shows, but Brett and his team at Fox News Sunday did a lot of research. I had done some research as well. I had spoken to some top Republicans. I had a series of points to make on the panel, and I was very pleased to see Brett and team challenge directly Senator Manchin with some of these points and see how Manchin would contend with those points, and I would suggest to you that Manchin did not contend well with them. He seems like an amiable Nice person, but his answers were just hugely unsatisfactory. I also mentioned last week, just to put it out there, to reiterate my point, Manchin has stood up and blocked some of the worst stuff that the Democrats have tried to do with these razor thin majorities. So I salute him for that. I'm not going to sit here and just nonstop dump on the guy. Like he's just like the rest of them, they're all just Democrats. He is different than a lot of the other ones. To his credit, he stood in the way with some of the most excessive insanity and took a lot of heat for it. And I think going after Manchin, turning the screws to him, getting hyper-personal and all of that, I just don't think that makes sense for Republicans to do because they're probably going to need his vote. Or at least his vote's going to be in play and significant for the foreseeable future. That being said, that doesn't let him off the hook for how bad this bill is and how many promises it breaks and how damaging it could be to the economy. You could say it's less bad than build back better by an order of magnitude. That's true. It is less bad. It doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it anything other than bad. It is bad, in my view. And if your mansion, willing to come in here and endorse explicitly as a or the Key vote, raising taxes in a recession, and spending a lot more money in inflation, you better have some good answers, some good explanations for why. And as I said, he fell way short in my view. So in cut 10, here's a soundbite from yesterday's show. Brett, the anchor, asked the senator, hey, you said this about raising taxes during a recession back when you were governor of West Virginia. Whatever happened to that? Does that standard still apply? Listen to this. Cut 10.
3: So in 2010, you said this. I don't think during a time of recession you mess with any of the taxes or increase any taxes. This bill does that. Now technically, we're in a recession. And technically, according to multiple different organizations, this bill does raise taxes.
4: They're wrong. It does not raise taxes. And I've said this before. I said all we did was close loopholes, if you heard. First of all, in 2017, the tax rate, corporate tax rate, was 35%. It went from 35 to 21, 14% reduction, Brett. And when that did, everyone says, "Oh my goodness, this is tremendous." All we're doing is basically saying the largest corporations in America that have a billion dollars of value or greater have to pay a minimum of 15% to help this great country.
0: That's a tax increase, among others in the bill. I was kind of bracing for him to. Repeat the hacktastic talking point from the White House and the media that we're not really in a recession, even though that's the definition. But he didn't do that. I didn't see this coming, I'll admit. I was not expecting him to concede the point, basically, indirectly, that we are in a recession, but then instead make the claim that his bill doesn't raise taxes. Yes, it does. By hundreds of billions of dollars. Like, no one had disputed that. All the write-ups, all the news stories, like this is the huge bucket of tax increases in the bill. Hundreds of billions of dollars in tax increases. And Manchin's trying to claim that they don't exist, that they're just closing loopholes. Brian Riedel, one of our regulars from the Manhattan Institute, not a terribly excitable guy, but a budget wonk, an expert. He tweeted, Manchin is flat out lying about this. I would be surprised to find a single tax expert who claims otherwise, he says. Deducting business investments is not a random loophole. It's one of the longest-standing centerpieces of business tax policy. So there are huge tax increases in the bill. By the way, some of the tax increases come in the form of giving $80 billion more to the IRS to hire a bunch of more auditors to audit more Americans. Now, if you're a big corporation or you're a rich millionaire or billionaire, you hire people to deal with that, to shield your assets, to handle headaches from the IRS. If you're a middle class person or a working class person and the IRS comes knocking with their newly empowered, more muscular, more robust army of auditors, that is going to be a world of hurt for you. And if you owe, that's going to be an effective tax increase on you. So enjoy that. But a lot of the tax increase just comes in the form of the actual bona fide tax increases, no matter what Manchin says. According to the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is nonpartisan, that is an official scorekeeper in Congress, the JCT estimates that within this Schumer Mansion bill, every income bracket will be hit with tax increases. They'll be paying more. And more than half of the tax increases will land on people making less than $400,000 a year. Remember that promise from Biden? Under his policies, under his administration, no one making less than four hundred dollars would see any tax increase. That was his poll-tested lie. I call it a lie because I've established that it is one. I've shown my work. You can go back and Google it at townhall.com. All the way back to his campaign in 2020, he was saying this is what he would do. He would never raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. And his own campaign policies, his plans that he had put out publicly, already violated that promise. And he has violated the promise repeatedly as president, endorsing bills that absolutely raise uh, taxes on the non-rich, including Build Back Better, of course, which, thank goodness, never became law. But this sort of BBB light includes a lot of tax increases on people who are not in that uh, income bracket. So it is yet another manifestation of a huge, broken promise and an untruth from President Biden. And just astoundingly to me, Mansion's like, "Oh, there are no tax increases in there." <laughs> That's just I mean, I, I laugh because it's laughable. Hundreds of billions of dollars of tax increases are in this bill, and they're going to hit American manufacturers extra hard, and they are going to hit an awful lot of Americans across all income groups. So you've got that. Now the bill what they're calling the bill, the name of the legislation, and this is always fun where they just slap a name on a bill to make it sound good and then say so like, "Well, how can you be against this?" Like Republicans could have, you know, whatever. Write a bill banning abortion and say it's the Saving Puppies from Drowning Act of 2023. And they would never get away with that because they would say, oh, that's a misleading headline because what the bill actually does is all this other stuff. So Republicans couldn't get away with that because the media is against them. Democrats at least think they can get away with it because the media is with them. But what they've named this bill is the Inflation Reduction Act, which really is shameless. I mean, talk about chutzpah. Right? During a recession, they're going to raise taxes a lot, and during inflation, they're going to raise spending. A lot. Well, a study from Penn, University of Pennsylvania, the Ivy League, Wharton, their business school. this is a study that Joe Manchin himself has cited in the past. He says he takes it very seriously. He watches it closely. Well, they have reviewed his bill. And they have found, quote, "The impact on inflation is statistically indistinguishable from zero. No impact on inflation." In fact, from this study, listen to this quote. We estimate that the Inflation Reduction Act will produce a very small increase in inflation for the first few years through 2024. So we're in very painful inflation right now. And the Democrats Inflation Reduction Act, per this Wharton study, would have overall no effect on inflation. But at least in the near term. 22 23 24 there would be a small increase in inflation this would actually be slightly inflationary which isn't surprising because they're spending a bunch more money if you don't believe me how about Nancy Pelosi in cut 21 this was a few days ago she sort of gives the game away
5: they're I trying to it.
0: pretend they're sorry they're, false start from me they're trying to pretend that this is a Inflation reduction, uh, reduction bill. They've named it that after all. And then she gets excited at the microphones and starts bragging sort of her default setting, bragging about how much money they're spending. Now we'll play cut 21.
5: I learned of what was in there was just transformational. We've never spent this much money, even as much as we had originally. We've never invested this much in such an important way. Uh, in a public-private way to have the private sector play its role in this so we get more advantage than is just right there.
0: Okay, so they're trying to tell you with the name of the stupid bill that it's going to reduce inflation, but then she kind of gets a little bit all fired up, and she's like, look, she's marketing it to the left. Look, this is transformational and unprecedented in the amount of money that we're spending. That kind of breaks down the talking points on curbing inflation. The Wharton study obviously shows that this would not be the case. In fact, it would increase inflation a little bit in the near term, which is where Americans are living right now. The pain is being experienced right now. Brett Baer asked Manchin about this and Manchin just said, oh, we'll uh, agree to disagree on that. So Manchin's talking points are there are no tax increases, which is flatly false. And the data and analysis from nonpartisan experts that say it's not going to do the things that you promise, he just – he had nothing. He just sort of hand-waved it away like, oh, well, I disagree. That is not impressive. That is not persuasive. And I'm not quite finished yet. There's more to get to here on this topic. Plus, we have Brett Bayer joining us in studio just a few minutes from now. We are just getting started. A new month on The Guy Benson Show. We are thrilled to have you along don't go anywhere.
2: Guy Benson will be right back.
0: As we continue on the Guy Benson show, here's another sound bite. Listen to this answer from Joe Manchin in response to Brett Bayer yesterday, Cut 13.
3: Why should Americans believe you now when you say that
4: this new bill will not exacerbate inflation? I made sure, I don't make that mistake again. That's the bottom line. I make sure I didn't make that mistake again. With that, I tried. I was anticipating that we could help and do more, and and, and everything that you have said here is correct, and I'm not countering that whatsoever. That's why I was extra cautious right now. And for the eight months that I have endured, being against Build Back Better and all the different things that the Democrat colleagues wanted to do, I thought was wrong, definitely couldn't do any more and stopped all that from happening, Brett. Uh, this is a piece of legislation that's an investment. We've taken $3.5 trillion in spending that was aspirational spending that my colleagues wanted to do on the Democrat side, and we've taken that down to a $400 billion investment. We're not sending a check to anybody. You're going to have to basically produce. You're going to have to get out there and put some capital out there, take some risk and produce, bringing manufacturing jobs back to America.
0: All right, so a couple things here. Basically an oops on the American Rescue Plan that he voted for, $2 trillion. He said it would not increase inflation. Of course it did, as even Democratic economists have now said, in very stark relief and very clear detail. Then he redefined spending to investment. He's like, well— Build Back Better was all this spending, but this is an investment at a lower dollar point. I think that's interesting, where he tries to uh, kind of play around with the words there. And then he closes, the last thing you heard him say there was, this is about, quote, bringing manufacturing jobs back to America. Well, the National Association of Manufacturers says that this bill, quote, would overwhelmingly hit U.S. manufacturers with tax increases. Quote, the impact would be swift and devastating to manufacturers and the economy as a whole. Their analysis finds that it would reduce GDP and would lower the workforce, would kill 218,000 jobs. The Nonpartisan Tax Foundation also found that this bill would reduce GDP growth and kill jobs. Exactly what we need in a recession. Exactly what we need during inflation. But aside from all of that, this bill sounds great, doesn't it? to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here from our Tony Snow studios in D.C., it's The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. And with us now, here in our studio, is Brett Bayer, chief political anchor here at Fox News, anchor of special report every weeknight at 6 p.m. He was also hosting Fox News Sunday yesterday, as I mentioned at the Open. He is author of multiple best-selling books, most recently To Rescue the Republic. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram, at Brett Baer. Hello, sir. Hey, Guy. Good to see you again. You know, I love the starting music. It has a good, like,
3: flow to it. What is that?
0: What we just played? Yeah, yeah. Is that the usual? I'll have to we go through a whole rotation. Oh. And then on the podcast, it's different because we don't have the rights to some of the pop music. So we mix it up, and it gives me some energy. Yeah, exactly. You know? So and, and sometimes we've gotten in trouble, not just from <laughs> listeners, but internally, where we'll have like a really upbeat song, and then the topic is super sad. Yeah. So we've become very attuned to that.:
3: Try accepting from the five. You know, with the handover. The handoff. And then you've got, like, some double train accident in some
0: place. (laughs) Right, exactly. Greg is screaming about (laughs) animals or something, (laughs) and you have to do a very quick transition. Exactly. Through the Fox News alert, probably, right? right. It's just like, all right. Serious face. Serious face, exactly. (laughs) I want to have a serious talk about your back and forth yesterday with Senator Manchin. I was in the green room here waiting to react on the panel, and— A number of the points that I would have made in your shoes, you guys made, and you guys had all the elements ready to go, challenging the senator on stuff that he'd said in the past, not really distant past in some cases, some of the analysis data coming out from nonpartisan experts, and I'm going to categorize it this way myself. I felt like he seemed— almost unresponsive to a lot of this stuff. It was just kind of a lot of hand-waving and like, we'll agree to disagree, and I'm confident that won't be the case this time. I mean, I guess that's his prerogative to make that argument, but it, it did not seem like he was equipped with a lot of substance to push back on some of these totally legitimate challenges
3: no i agree with you and you know he didn't have another study that says something different he just said i disagree with that uh, and mentioned the 17 Nobel Nobel laureates who were quoted by the white house all at the time about the inflation being transitory he was right they you know it was not it, it stuck around um, but the point was is that he signed on to that 1.9 a trillion dollars. And he co- said, sort of,
0: mea culpa. Yeah. I got I that one wrong, but not this time.
3: Yeah. And so, what's different? And I think it was evident. I didn't want to keep pressing it. There were a couple of things I left off that I wish I had asked. One was in this bill, there is, uh, you know, for all of the talk about no taxes, there's a huge expansion of the IRS 87,000 agents hired, double the staff to go after audits of families and farms and everything else. No taxes, but I'm. it's really interesting to but see. But there are
0: taxes, too. Like, that was the other thing. He said there are no tax increases, and I just sat sort of slack-jawed in the green What is yeah. he talking about? There's hundreds of billions of dollars in tax increases here. I have not heard anyone else. I was expecting him to dispute that we're in a recession. That's right. the Democratic talking point. Yeah. He didn't. He just said there are no tax increases, and I was like, admittedly— I didn't see that one coming. I know.
3: And you know, it was asked at the White House too. Peter Ducey asked it, Does the president want to take back his support for this since he said no one under four hundred thousand would be taxed under his presidency? And they said no because they say the study does not take into account the savings that you get from pre- prescription drugs and energy costs that are going to be built into this bill it's just a giant shell game
0: yep. so they're dismissing and by the way what they're dismissing is the joint committee on taxation which is the nonpartisan Scorekeeper on Capitol Hill, like if it's like CBO to a certain extent on taxes, right? And they have said this will raise taxes on all of these people making less than four hundred grand, and the White House basically says, "Don't believe that; it doesn't count."
3: Yeah, these are the these are not the droids you're looking for. (laughs) You know, like it's just what are they doing? They cited that group when they were trying to pitch the infrastructure bill. That's the group they cited. Right. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask was the increase in coal plants, um, the taxes on coal plants in his own state.
0: Odd choice for a West Virginian.
3: I mean, there's some West Virginia stuff in there. There's an oil pipeline. There's some, you know, candy um, thrown in there. But I just felt like it was sort of half-hearted, and I almost wondered whether he truly believes whether this is going to pass or not.
0: Well, on that point, there's this, and and we're going to get in the weeds, but— I guess this is what we do. We have to distill this somebody has to. understandable and somewhat interesting. I'm not saying really interesting. Borderline somewhat interesting. Well, we can
3: always play the music again.
0: But <laughs> right, exactly. We just, like, talk about it over some really <laughs> upbeat, like, Lady Gaga. It'll be thrilling. But what we're hearing from Republicans is that Manchin is in the process of getting rolled. He and Schumer just rolled the Republicans by sort of playing this game and then surprising them just, you know, Pouncing as soon as another bill passed that they needed the Republicans' help on. Then they said, surprise, we've actually got a deal in place on this other thing.
3: And a bill. written. Yes. 700 pages. It's not like it's just a thought. This is like typed out, done. Yeah.
0: No, they sprung this on the Republicans. McConnell rarely gets, I think, his rear end handed to him quite this, obviously. But I think in this case he did. And now the question is, is Manchin about to have the same thing happen to him from his own side, from the Democratic side, because he says, and you asked him about this, he's extracted concessions on permitting reform for fossil fuels and the the ability of Americans to generate some of our own energy here. He said, they've made a promise to me. It's not in the bill. Mm -hmm. The 700 pages, it's not in there. It's just a promise, like a little IOU note from Schumer and Pelosi to Mm -hmm. Joe Manchin, here you go. And Republicans are saying the second they get all of their tax increases and all their spending and all this climate stuff. Good luck getting the permitting reform on stuff that a lot of the base does not want. You asked him about this. Here was his answer, cut 12 yesterday, Fox News Sunday.
4: We have an agreement. I have a trust there. But I can tell you, it has consequences if either one of us don't keep our bargain. So from Chuck Schumer to Nancy Pelosi to, uh, to the president of the United States... Uh, we have an agreement that we are going to do permitting reforms. If that doesn't happen, I said again, on either side, if I don't keep my my word and my bargain, if they don't keep theirs, there will be consequences.
3: What are those consequences? Yeah, I should have mean? asked that. And, you know, like, I listen to these things. I think, ah, why didn't I follow up? I was thinking about the
0: next thing. Yeah, I had but to you get have to. like twelve minutes, yeah. right? And you want yeah. to get to the. But obviously, the follow-up question is, what are the consequences? Because maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm being naive maybe they are going to make good on their word and he'll get exactly what he's asked for that is possible however his end of the bargain is to vote for this giant package of taxing and spending and growing the government once he's done that yeah. they're they're about to lose their majority anyway at least in the house what leverage does he have left to exact consequences if they say oh gosh joe we tried yeah. but the squad won't do it over in the house and we're sort of stuck so sorry about the permitting I don't quite know how the consequences would work there, unless he would just hold on to that bitterness and do something down the line that's going to freak the left out again. Uh, maybe Which that's is possible.
3: I suppose. I mean, but it's like I'll gladly pay you next Tuesday <laughs> right, for a hamburger right, today. Right. Uh, and <laughs> I think that it's a little a little shaky if that's what you're going to hang your hat on about the balance in this bill. You know, as far as fossil fuels. Um, I think there are other things in this bill that are troubling, and we still have yet to hear, and I'm being told that cinema has not decided.
0: That was my next question. What do you make of the silence from the Arizona senator?
3: The f- Well, now they are full on saying she has not decided. That's not like she's made a decision she's not telling you. This is she's not decided. And Manchin said today that he was going to reach out to her, which is also kind of weird that in this process that she wasn't part of the deal, like part of the we got to make sure we like have this vote because if we don't have this vote, all this stuff doesn't mean anything because you have to have the votes. Now, just further into the weeds, Cornyn has COVID, so that's one fewer uh, Republican. So they could actually pass today that bill. Dur- right. Durbin, I think, gets back from his COVID. So it's, right. it's, it's literally in and out and— You know, it's numbers. You know, I went back to the history books. In 1986, the Reagan budget, they were short of vote. And Senator Pete Wilson from California was in the hospital. And they rolled him in on a wheelchair with an IV in a brown robe. And he cast a vote that was the deciding vote on the budget. You could see. One of these COVID guys getting in a, you know, bio suit, uh, giving thumbs up on the floor and then getting out. You know, it's not beyond the realm of possibilities. The Senate can't vote remotely. You have to be.
0: Unlike the House, where they do it all the time. As a matter of course, some people never show up for work. They just, you know, pass along. They like email. Yeah, I'm a yes on this. Whatever Pelosi wants. A shocking number of them actually do that. On cinema, she is to the left significantly of Manchin. So I think ultimately she gets there. Maybe she has to extract one or two things to show that she was mad, that she was cut out of the negotiation. I think they're going to pass this or something close to it. But, Brett, I have to tell you, it's funny. When the email blast goes out or it's in playbook or whatever that you're a panelist on Fox News Sunday, you start hearing from folks. Yeah. want to make sure that you're aware of their issues and yeah, their yeah. perspectives. So you field some phone calls. And I had a few reach-outs from top-level Republicans on the Hill in both chambers I don't know if this is spin, but to me, there's something credible to it. They say that they obviously hope it fails and that it doesn't pass. But if it does, they are eager to run ads. They said there is so much stuff in this bill that could be politically toxic that the D.C. bubble is excited about some surprise movement from Manchin. It will not make much of a difference to most Americans, but when key voters in key races are – Educated about some of the things that these Democrats would vote for. Republicans are feeling pretty good about the potency of some attacks they've got ready to go. And we ran through a bunch of them during the first half hour of the show. I mean, there's some material there to work with, certainly.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, the IRS thing alone is a, an ad in and of itself. Yep, Do
0: you yep, like? Good point. You know,
3: 87,000 yeah. more IRS agents. Um, I heard a pundit today on another channel. Uh, say that this is massively positive for President Biden, and it is such a massive turnaround, it's it's Reagan-esque oh. how, how much he's getting done now. And so the turn from, we need to kick this guy out, he's not working, he's got super low approval ratings, to suddenly he is the guy that can get everything done, it's just not sensical, well, and his wait. approval ratings are still super low. Yeah,
0: wait a few days, and yeah. all the suing will be over, and they'll be back to looking for someone else. That's my prediction. I don't think that this bill is going to be massively popular. I think the more Republicans get out there on the attack, it will become less popular.
3: And if inflation goes up, it's going to become really right.
0: unpopular, Or at least just remains bad, right? Because the the study that we were quoting from Wharton said that it will have no effect at all, in fact, slightly inflationary for the first couple of years. Like, okay. And, what, Manufacturer Association said it will bring down GDP. Tax Foundation found the same thing in a moment where GDP is contracting. It just sort of seems crazy. Seems like a pretty easy thing to assail from a Republican standpoint. And uh, they will perhaps get those ads fired up and ready to go heading into November. Another topic that we addressed briefly on Fox News Sunday yesterday was – the Democrats targeting Republicans and helping their sort of more MAGA right wing Stop the Steel challengers to the tune of millions, tens of millions of dollars so far this cycle. And I have railed against that on this show. Congressman Peter Meyer has a piece out today explaining
3: it's really good. what the
0: Democrats are doing to him. It is, I think, very impactful and outrageous, frankly.
3: I mean, here's a guy who voted for the impeachment. Yes. One of and, his first
0: votes ever in Congress.
3: And he's worked across the aisle, et cetera, et cetera. But they want the seat, so they're trying to lift up the uh, MAGA challenger.
0: Because they think he would be easier to beat. That's the whole theory. They're doing it at the gubernatorial level, the Senate level, and the House level. All the, the official Democratic Party is playing this dirty pool. And you've been co-anchoring these January 6th committee hearings. Mm-hmm. And the argument from the Democrats is this is a moment not for partisanship, not for politics. It's a moment for the country and putting the nation first, and you have to put country over party because this is a clear and present immediate danger to democracy itself and to our Republican form of government. It is really hard to swallow that message seriously from a party that is doing this kind of stuff, feeding money to help promote people – that they then plan to turn around and say, in a general election, oh, big danger. We're going to help them now, big danger later. It seems just like cynical, pure politics.
3: It is. It is, 100%. And um, the question is whether voters, it bothers voters. I think voters are smarter than people give them credit for, and they get PO'd at this kind of stuff. And um, see the cynical nature of... Uh, one day giving millions of dollars and the next day saying, you're a threat to democracy. I mean, those ads lose a little steam if the counter ad is, thanks for the money.
0: Yeah. You helped me get here. (laughs) You did this. So Speaker Pelosi was asked about this, and she basically tried to say both things. She tried to have her cake and eat it too in the same answer. And you can hear right here, Cut 22, how incoherent it is. Listen,
5: I said that we need a strong Republican Party, not a cult of personality. That didn't mean we shouldn't have a strong Democratic Party as well. And the political decisions that are made out there are made uh, in furtherance of our winning the election because we think the contrast between Democrats and Republicans, as they are now, is so drastic that we we have to win.
0: We need a strong Republican Party and not a cult of personality, so we're going to send millions of dollars to the cult of personality because ultimately we need to win. That's what she said.
3: It is, and that's how they're justifying it. The problem for a lot of them is that these races, some of them are tight. Some of them are tighter than they thought they were going to be, and now they're running against somebody that possibly is going to win who's going to be tougher to deal with for them if they're in the minority
0: especially in an environment like this one where there'll be some degree of a red wave we don't know how big it'll be maybe this strategy will will pay off to some extent for the Democrats but I mean talk about playing with fire in terms of these people possibly getting elected and then just again asking people I just don't think you can ask people to take your rhetoric seriously about country over party when you do this stuff that is explicitly party over country by their own standards last word Brett
3: I agree with you. I think we're in for a long haul until November, and uh, 99 days days in politics is an eternity. So I think we're going to be about 20,000 news cycles uh, before then.
0: And we'll be commenting on all of them. (laughs) On Special (laughs) Report... Every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, including tonight, anchored by Brett Bayer, our guest here in studio, and our colleague. Brett, great to see you. You too. We don't have any exciting music to bump out out at the top of the hour. Uh, That's what we would have. So next time. (laughs) All right. All right. That's Brett Bayer on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Back here on The Guy Benson Show, a story that has basically vanished from the press but is still very much a reality for parents in this country. The Daily Mail has a story today, a baby formula crisis. Remember that? Still happening. The baby formula crisis worsens as out-of-stock levels hit 30%. Story quotes one mother who is struggling to feed her twins saying, I'm sure these politicians' babies get to eat. So the U.S. now reporting a 30% out-of-stock rate for Formula Nationwide based on data from the week ending July 24th. Worst in the country right now is Arizona, 44% out-of-stock. And I know that we had a few news cycles about it, then it went away, and we've had Jessica Tarloff and other young mothers on this show saying, No, it is not over. I get texts about it, tweets about it. This is still happening on this president's watch. And a bunch of people aren't talking about it or mentioning it, but we will. Another hour coming up.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
0: It's a new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. Between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free, on demand, after the show is over. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow closing down slightly. It's in the red. Shedding 46 points today and closing at 32,798. Joining us right now is Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. You can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, good to have you back. Thank you so much, Guy. I'd like to get your overall take on Speaker Pelosi's Taiwan drama. Is she going? Is she not going to go while she's over in Asia? Reports today are that she very much plans to go to Taipei as planned, Despite all of these sort of escalating threats from the Chinese, there were reports that the Biden White House was pressuring her and trying to cajole her not to go to Taiwan. But now they are more forcefully backing her decision should she decide to go, saying, We're not going to be intimidated. Seems like this has been a lot of moving parts behind the trip that may or may not happen. If she goes, if the reports are true, I think that's a good development. But again, there's sort of a lot of ancillary issues floating around here. And I'm just wondering how you're thinking about it.
6: Yeah, The most important thing is that it does appear Speaker Pelosi is going. She'll arrive sometime Tuesday, leave sometime Wednesday and speak to government officials. This is important, Guy, for as, for as you point out, because if she doesn't go, she would be um, emboldening and legitimizing the worst elements in the Chinese political system by showing everybody else that intimidation against Americans works. And then we'd be in a horrible dynamic. Um, this has not reflected very well on President Biden. If you go back and you remember on last Wednesday uh, when Biden was speaking offhand to reporters, he said, I don't think, you know, the military doesn't think that you should go. Well, what Biden did by saying that is opening the door to even more Chinese intimidation. And in fact, their warnings got more dire after his comments. So really this was um, some very bad diplomacy on the part of the president.
0: There was at least someone talking about shooting down Pelosi's plane or, you know, if her plane is escorted by military jets, that's going to be an attack on China. Have they overplayed their hand? Like, let's say Pelosi shows up, does the trip, glad hands, takes some photos and leaves, and nothing really comes of it. Does their sort of very belligerent language lose some credibility because they didn't do anything? I'm not rooting for them to do something, you know— drastic, but I'm sort of wondering, does does all the rhetoric really mean anything ultimately?
6: Yeah, I think that they are not going to shoot down our plane, but the one thing we've got to remember is that Chinese uh, leaders calculate their interests in very different ways than we think they should. And right now, I think they are two things are at play. They don't respect the Biden administration after, especially after the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan and the failure to stop Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. And so they think they can do what they want. But also, I think Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, is desperate because he's uh, presided over some debacles at home, and he really does need a foreign crisis. Um, so. Anything can happen, and we Americans underestimate the danger of this particular situation.
0: Morgan Ortegas, I've been quoting her left and right whenever anyone asks me about it, because she was on this show, former State Department spokeswoman, last week, and she said the fact that all of this has played out in open view and been a big media talking point and a debate is very unhelpful. She sounds supportive of Speaker Pelosi going to Taiwan, so am I. But she said it should have never been public like this. It should have just happened. And China could have said a few angry things afterwards. Instead, there's been this sort of um, almost spiraling of criticism and threats and back and forth and leaked reports of what Biden would want or not. It just seems like it hasn't been handled very well. I don't know if that's Pelosi's fault, but it, it does very much seem to me like it would have been much smarter to have her unannounced show up and then leave, as opposed to the way it's played out?
6: Well, certainly the way this played out has been very bad, and Morgan Ortega is absolutely right about that. I I believe that it's probably the president's fault I don't think that uh, the speaker um, leaked uh, the news of her trip to Taiwan. I think it was probably done by the administration. If we needed to find a culprit, they'd be the most likely one, because they wanted to pressure her not to go, and they knew that there would be this firestorm. But we also know one thing, Guy, and that is that the president, in his Thursday phone call with Xi Jinping. Um, you know, sat there and listened to some very dangerous language from the Chinese leader. We know that because the Chinese foreign ministry's readout of the call said that Xi Jinping actually threatened the life of the president of the United States, and Biden didn't appear to really be moved by it at all. I mean, he didn't. He didn't get angry. Um, This is just wrong. I mean, he can not be concerned about his own life, but he does need to be concerned about the lives of Americans. And by failing to react to Xi Jinping, that actually put us at risk.
0: John Kirby was one of the briefers today at the White House, and he was talking about this. Seems like they're now trying to downplay the whole situation, having perhaps escalated behind the scenes and through leaks and that sort of thing. Now they're downplaying it. They're saying Pelosi makes her own decisions that you know we're not going to be intimidated what's all the drama here he's sort of asking that question what's the deal with all the drama china doesn't have to you know be this acrimonious and make all these threats he also said this in cut 29 listen
4: repeatedly said
5: that we oppose
4: any unilateral changes to the status quo from either side we have said that we do not support taiwan independence and we have said that we expect cross-strait differences to be resolved by peaceful means
0: Okay. And we can expect all we want. The Chinese might have a different view of it, and the CCP might be planning to do something very much not diplomatic at some point in the future. But that was a reiteration right there from the Pentagon spokesman and a top administration spokesman saying that the U.S. government, the Biden administration, does not support Taiwan independence. That is not a change. That's not unique to the Biden administration. That's been sort of this Ambiguous position that the U.S. has held for a while. But, Gordon, we've also heard from President Biden that if the Chinese were to attack Taiwan, that the U.S. would defend and help defend Taiwan against that aggression from mainland China against, in my view, the independent, separate country of Taiwan. Then they've walked that back, right? So Biden has said it two or three times. Then they kind of walk it back each time. They say, well, we're not in favor of independence, but we're not in favor of that. I think to a lot of people who might not follow this stuff super closely, it kind of feels confusing what actually the U.S. position is.
6: Yes, and and what's even worse, Guy, is that in the uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry readout, um, they they have actually misrepresented the American position, um, and Biden's readout did not correct it. And so you have um, all of these statements. Uh, One thing about Kirby, he doesn't make policy, so I suppose we can't blame him. But whoever drafted those talking points, I think, actually did a great disservice to the United States and to Taiwan. Yes, we don't support Taiwan independence, quote-unquote, but he didn't need to say it. Also, Taiwan is independent, in fact— Uh, It meets all of the tests of statehood under the Montevideo Convention. And so um, we shouldn't be actually saying those things. Um, You know, every time Kirby opens his mouth, I just cringe because
0: of what he's going to say. What should we say? Right. If if it's not good to say what he did say and he went too far and said too many things, what would be the appropriate without getting overly hawkish, without poking them too much in the eye in Beijing? What would be the appropriate way to frame this? In your view?
6: The appropriate way to frame it without poking them in the eye is to say that the United States is a democracy, Taiwan is a democracy, and we're not allowing any semi totalitarian state to tell us who we're going to talk to. Now, there are other provocative things we can say and which we should say. But if we don't want to, quote-unquote, inflame the situation, we need to stand behind the Speaker's trip in resolute tones, not what we heard from John Kirby, not what we've heard from other administration officials on background.
0: Well, it seems like the people who have been most vocal in their support for Pelosi's trip that is now reported to be happening this week uh, to Taiwan have been Republicans, rarely people who come or rush to her defense in any capacity, but in this case, they are. I think that's good. It's consistent of them. It's the type of support that I think is healthy and necessary because the Chinese Communist Party has no business telling senior U.S. officials where they can and cannot travel. And- indicating anything other than how unacceptable that is i think would be a huge mistake and it looks like at least a lot of republicans on the hill and speaker pelosi are on the same page there and maybe the biden team finally is getting there belatedly as well gordon chang on the guy benson show gordon as always thank you we'll be right back Benson. We are back last month on the program we told you about San Diego, California, where they are still instituting and reimposing a mask mandate in schools. And we played sound of one of the district leaders, one of the adults, saying that if parents had a problem with their kids being masked up for many hours a day in school, well, they could just keep their kids at home. Just don't show up to school, which we know is a disaster for the kids. We know that mask mandates don't work, that they are especially useless with children, especially with certain kinds of masks. But being out of school is very damaging to kids, extremely damaging. And parents have all sorts of reasons to want their kids both in school and not wearing masks because there are some downsides for certain students being forced to wear masks with little to no upside at all for any of the kids. I'm not talking about banning masks in schools, but at least having it be optional, which has become, for the most part, the norm in a lot of places around the country, but not everywhere, including in some spots out in California, which is often ground zero for madness in this country. So that was the story out of San Diego where the adults in charge do not care about the science. They do not care about the data. They do not care about the well-being of children. They care about their ideological and tribal superstitions. That's what they apparently care about more than anything. In the San Diego Union Tribune, the big newspaper down there, there's an op-ed written by an epidemiologist, a doctor, who says, Here's why San Diego Unified's mask mandate won't slow COVID-19. This is Dr. John Ayers, who's a Johns Hopkins and Harvard-trained epidemiologist. He writes, The San Diego Unified School District adopted a mask mandate on July 18th for the last two weeks of summer school automatically triggered by the prevalence of COVID-19 infections in the county. The intention of the policy, which could be reinstated for the new school year as well, based on community spread, was to slow infection rates. Such policies have been the subject of intense national media attention. Sadly, this is a reflection of how masking has become a divisive political issue. However, San Diego's masking policy is ultimately about science and should be immune to political fads which kind of sounds like he's ramping up to say and this is why we should wear masks and why the kids should be required to wear masks but he's actually following the science so that is not his position he writes 14 out of 16 trials performed before the pandemic found that recommendations to wear a mask did not significantly reduce infection rates compared to unmasked controls two trials on community masking have been performed during the pandemic. A trial in Denmark showed the recommendation to wear surgical masks did not reduce infections. A trial in Bangladesh showed reusable cloth masks did not reduce infections. I would add that we've also had a giant real-time experiment, not a laboratory study, but just the real world, where you had entire countries that were mask-optional or unmasked, You had certain school districts that required masks, while others in similar communities and areas did not. And the transmission rates were statistically indistinguishable. Mask mandates, as even David Leonhardt of The New York Times has conceded and shared with his overwhelmingly liberal audience, do not work in the COVID era. They just don't. And it's even more useless with kids who are already at a very low risk of severe cases or outcomes from COVID. It's amazing to me. It feels like time is just a continuous circle where we learn nothing in some places, that we are debating vaccines for kids. We'll talk about that coming up in the next segment with Dr. Nicole Sapphire. And here's school mask mandates. And so here's an epidemiologist patiently trying to explain that the data doesn't support such requirements. And to his credit, he's citing specific studies. I'm just citing the broad reality out of Scandinavia, the U.K., the disparity here in the United States, and the numbers showing it really makes no difference. And we've been talking about that for months at this point. This doctor goes on, quote, As designed, San Diego Unified's masking policy, which includes reusable cloth... And surgical masks will likely not reduce the spread of COVID-19. The larger environment in which the district's mask policy is being implemented has also changed. I'm glad he writes this, too. First, infection is about 80 percent less severe for the current variants compared to ancestral variants. Moreover, the risk of death from COVID among children is less than one one thousandth the risk to the elderly. Now, we know that the elderly and people with significant comorbidities and pre existing conditions are at greater risk of hospitalization and death from COVID than everyone else. That is less true now because of the less severe variants, which is good. We're in a different time and place than we were at the beginning of COVID and even during the Delta wave, for example. But while the relative risk to elderly people was much higher, it was for children, it was still overall relatively low in absolute terms, even to elderly people who got it. The death rate was still low, far too high, tragically high, but still low. You take that low number, you cut it by a thousand, and that was the risk to kids. And the risk to healthy kids without major pre-existing conditions, basically non-existent. So here's a doctor who's trying to basically plead with the school district. The data shows that these mask mandates don't work. They don't work for schools. The way that you've designed this makes no sense at all. The current environment is different than it was even a year plus ago. The variant is less severe, and the kids already were at an infinitesimally small risk of dying from COVID to begin with. You would think all of that information combined would result in a complete overhaul of any policy related to masking in schools and would shift everything to voluntary masking, as it has in a lot of places but not everywhere. But there are still holdouts. Some of the most hardcore tribal members of this capital S politicized science clique or cult are clinging on. And it seems like no amount of pleading or data is going to change their mind. But we'll still bring it to you here on The Guy Benson Show. We will talk about COVID in schools, mandates, and broadly in the community coming up next with Dr. Nicole Sapphire. We'll talk about monkeypox as well. An interview you don't want to miss straight ahead.
2: talking about the issues you care about guy benson
0: back here on the guy benson show guy Bensonshow.com is our website podcast is free every day and i'm pleased to welcome back to the airwaves dr nicole sapphire board certified medical doctor and senior fox news medical contributor she is best-selling author of the book panic attack and doctor welcome back Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. I saw on your social that you were just back, fresh off a of vacation, and it looked fabulous. Where'd you go?
1: Uh, I have to tell you, today, Monday, hit me like a train uh, being away <laughs> in Montana, the great wide open. It's been wonderful. I was away with my family, just doing all the outdoor activities you can imagine, fishing. Um, bow and arrow, archery, rifle shooting, ropes course, you know, you name it, we did it. I, w- I don't think we were inside at all, but it was a great outdoor camping experience with the family. But back to work.
0: Yeah, jumping back into the real world after a vacation is always rough. And the better the vacation, the more difficult the transition is. But maybe we'll ease you back in here with, oh just a few lighthearted topics like COVID and monkeypox. <laughs> so, doctor, let's start with the president. And his COVID diagnosis, his recovery, and then I guess he tested positive again. It was this rebound case, even though he had no symptoms. And I saw some experts out there saying this is very rare, although I don't know how rare it actually is with Paxlovid or otherwise. I think this happened with Fauci as well. The quick little double dip is something that I've heard many times. It's happened to a lot of people I'm just trying to figure out, is it something we should be that concerned about because he didn't have symptoms in round two? He was feeling fine. Is there a need to be sort of obsessively testing someone all the time, especially if they've just recovered from COVID?
1: Well, if you follow me on social media, you know that I am against random asymptomatic testing. We need to stop doing that so aggressively. Um, but the thing that's happening right now, people are referring to as Paxlovid rebound. You know, Pfizer said, and what happens is essentially someone takes this medication for about five days when they have COVID-19. Their symptoms get better. They start to test And then 24, 48, 72 hours afterwards, all of a sudden, they start testing positive again. Dr. Fauci, we saw that he started actually getting symptoms. So far, they're saying President Biden doesn't have symptoms with his, quote, unquote, rebound. You know, but what does it really mean? And uh, Pfizer says about 2% of all people who take Paxlovid have this rebound. You know, a few a few places like Mayo Clinic and a, a couple others have done a short studies showing that this rebound effect may be anywhere from, I don't know, 1% up to 10%. And I think that's even underestimated, underreported, because at the end of the day, we're not aggressively testing everybody. People are just taking the medication, they feel better, and they move on. They don't even know if they're testing positive five, seven days afterwards. But what does it mean? It doesn't mean that he's got exposed again and he has COVID all over again, it means that it never really just went away. Paxlovid is a dual antiviral and it's supposed to suppress replication of the virus. And so it seems to be doing that. We have good data showing it does that in unvaccinated individuals. Now, perhaps because it's only a five-day course and the virus, as we know, with COVID-19 stays in your system for longer than five days after they finish taking Paxlovid, then maybe It starts replicating again, and all of a sudden they have a Mm -hmm. higher viral load than they did while they were taking it. That makes sense. You know, that's possible. Or another theory is, did Paxlova just suppress their immune system, and now as soon as they stop taking it, they're finally having that um, immune response to the virus in themselves? They don't actually know. But at the end of the day, Guy, I mean, I think I've already said this to you. I personally think that this medication is being overutilized right now. We don't even know what the benefit is in vaccinated, let alone double boosted individuals. And I think that it really should be reserved for the very high risk.
0: Doctor, I just want to dig a little deeper on this, because yesterday I was chatting with two people. We were all indoors and I'm not mocking them or making fun of them. They were making their choices for themselves, and that's something that I've been advocating throughout this whole process, but they were masked. So we were sitting together in a room. They were wearing masks. I was not, and we were talking about this Biden sort of double-dip COVID story or the rebound COVID, whatever you want to call it, and I basically expressed the view that you just did, which is should we be really fixated on testing people who aren't symptomatic, which they're saying Biden is not, right? He's not symptomatic in this second round. Is it necessary to be testing him and then putting it out there into the world? Oh, he's got it again, or he once again is testing positive. Now, I get he's the president, and they're probably going to test him more, and it's an extenuating circumstance because of his position. But my overall point was it seems excessive. It seems unnecessary. If someone has just recovered from COVID, they have no symptoms to then have a whole new hubbub over the fact that there was a positive test, is there really value in even administering that test? And their argument, these uh, two ladies that I was talking to, was, well, he might be unknowingly putting people in danger because if he has COVID and is testing positive but he's asymptomatic, he should be at least aware of that because he could give it to someone else. I get that, but I also feel like, That mentality can leave us in a permanent COVID state for a very long time in a way that I think is just impractical at this stage. And I wonder what your response would be to the mentality that they were sharing.
1: Well, first of all, let's think about this. All of a sudden, this concept of asymptomatic spread has really only become a thing with COVID, right? We don't do this for anything else flu, strep throat. Uh, anything else that you can potentially give to another person who may be vulnerable. And that's what people keep saying. So they say, well, you could be asymptomatically transmitting it to someone who is immunocompromised, and then that puts them at risk. It's like, well, yes, but people all the time have sinus infections, other respiratory infections, strep throat, and other things that they are – able to transmit to other people, but they go to the doctor, they get the medication or they don't have symptoms anymore. And we kind of just let them back out in the world, knowing that if you are sick, you should stay home because when you are symptomatic, you have a higher likelihood of transmitting whatever pathogen it is that you are carrying. And if the person themselves is considered high risk, it it, it is they they know what they have to do to protect themselves. Vaccines boosters not just the covid ones but the other ones and if they are in high risk settings oftentimes they'll either avoid them or they'll consider wearing a mask themselves this has been a normal normalcy for a while but you know interestingly enough my husband asked me a question guy that you know is a great conversation to have with you because he said why are most people wearing masks right now is it because they are truly afraid of this virus Is it because or is it because it's a level of solidarity and it's they're aligning with that said, you know, political um, party because all of a sudden it has become politicized. And I said to him, you know, I think some people truly are still afraid of this virus, even the lowest risk people. Some people really just are afraid of it. We have just instilled so much panic, so much fear that doesn't necessarily parallel reality for all. And I would say, by the way,
0: both of these both of these individuals were probably about 40 years old. And to my knowledge, healthy. So, you know, yeah, and again, 40, I'm not going to sit here and say,
4: healthy.
0: Yeah, I was like, I'm not going to tell them you're ridiculous for wearing a mask. You shouldn't be wearing one. If that's what they want to do, that's fine. But I am not wearing one because I don't think that they're that helpful, especially if they're not those highly effective masks. I think at least one of them was wearing an N95 mask, if I recall correctly. But, you know, regardless, I'm making my choice, they're making theirs. I just don't. I think that it is a reasonable expectation to have people wearing masks, especially of that profile at this point. But if they want to, fine, fine. I just think that it's a little bit much.
1: Well, and, you know, interestingly, Guy, even Pfizer's own data shows that uh, someone who's 40 and otherwise healthy taking Paxlovid, there wasn't a statistically significant difference in their hospitalization rate with or without Paxlovid, because they're so low risk for hospitalization at that point. So, you know, they continue to wear the mask, you know, kind of just ignoring the fact that the data shows that they are at such a low risk for a severe outcome from this virus, but it's just been instilled in people that you have to wear a mask. And if you're not wearing a mask, you're being irresponsible.
0: Meanwhile, I want to ask you a question that's related. I'm not sure if you've seen this story yet. It was from yesterday's Washington Post. And knowing your overall stance on this, I would imagine it drives you crazy if you've already seen it. If not, here's the headline from the Post. D.C. schools expand COVID vaccine mandate unlike most other districts. Here's how the story starts. Washington, D.C. students who are 12 and older must be vaccinated against the coronavirus to attend school this upcoming academic year. The youth vaccine mandate in D.C. is among the strictest in the nation, according to health experts, and is being enacted in a city with wide disparities in vaccination rates between white and black children. Overall, about 85% of students between the ages of 12 and 15 have been vaccinated against the virus. But the rate drops to 60% among black children in this age range. If the city does not close this gap but does enforce the vaccine mandate this fall, students of color who experienced disproportionately large academic setbacks during the pandemic could be at home in significant numbers next academic year. So, this is now the 2022 2023 school year. And in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, experts are admitting that up to 40% of black students might have to do so-called remote learning again because their parents did not want to sign them up for a vaccine of dubious benefit to kids, and yet that's the rule. And these are the people, Doctor, who talk about equity and fairness and racial justice, and yet strong crossover with this crowd that would defend or applaud this policy. Your thoughts.
1: Well, Guy, I did read that article, and you know, it's extremely upsetting. First of all, when you are specifically talking about Black and other minority students, they have been harmed the most throughout the course of the pandemic. Uh, the education disparity has just gotten. Overwhelming throughout the last couple of years. And, you know, we have to take a step outside of that for one second to know that vaccine mandates are not uncommon in public school settings. These are not new. But we do have to reevaluate what the purpose is of these mandates when it comes to measles, meningitis polio these are on you know not completely eradicated but a very very rare occurrence of these viruses affecting children and but when they do there's a high level of mortality so we want to make sure that those viruses are not circulating and are not mutating which is yes. why I am on board and of course I support childhood vaccines however yes. let's look at the covid vaccine we know that it is not stopping transmission and while it does reduce severity it really, the benefits of it are in the more higher risk and older people. They haven't actually proven a large benefit, especially in young children. And so, and it, and honestly, you can even parallel it with the flu because the flu vaccine, you know, oftentimes it's only a 40%, 50% efficacy. But even that 40 or 50 percent efficacy to prevent infection is much higher than the COVID vaccine efficacy at preventing infection, especially after a few weeks. And they're now saying children right now have to get vaccinated with an outdated vaccine that doesn't even target the Omicron variant. But
2: Or you can't show up to season school. Season like, to that's the thing.
0: You're talking about this, doctor, how the benefit for kids getting vaccinated. And we we're talking last week about how only about 3 percent of young kids, five and under, ...have gotten the vaccine, so most parents don't feel like that is necessary for good reason. Based on the data, you're saying it is highly questionable how helpful and useful this vaccine is for kids. However, it is not debatable how harmful kids of any age being locked out of classrooms and unable to attend school is. That is well established at this point, and yet the risk assessment here is basically exactly backwards from the Brain Trust running Washington, D.C
1: absolutely it is over and over proven how harmful these policies have been to children keeping children out of school widening the educational disparities and when the enrollment is down it's not over, only just children being in remote learning it's parents aren't going to do it so children are not getting enrolled in school anymore i mean we're we're creating an entire generation of children who are going to be far behind in their education this will have have consequences for years and decades to come and yet we, we have so much data showing how harmful those policies are for children, and yet we do not have data really demonstrating that there is an overwhelming benefit of these vaccine mandates in children, not to mention over 90% of these kids have probably already had COVID and have some right. level of natural immunity. If these right. vaccines prevented infection and transmission, there is an argument there for it, but they don't, and they need to reevaluate what they are doing and actually put the children first.
0: Let's step aside real quick and turn to Monkeypox, some developments there. We will ask Dr. Sapphire about all of that when we return to The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: back on the Guy Benson show with guest Dr. Nicole Sapphire and Dr. Last Question on monkeypox. I saw a story also from the Washington Post about how there are not enough monkeypox vaccine shots in the United States even for the highest risk group, generally younger men gay or bisexual, and there's a shortage. And I know certainly in New York and DC there's a scarcity of this vaccine. We might not be getting more vaccine until the fall like October. We're talking months from now. And there are lots of questions about who should get the vaccine first, is it stigmatizing to talk about this as a gay or disease among men who have sex with men? What is your overall view on the monkeypox outbreak and whether we're doing a good job of trying to fight it because to me the lack of vaccines and some of the bureaucratic red tape and the the slowness of all of this is pretty indefensible.
1: I mean, it seems like they to do with COVID all over again on how poorly the United States is handling this. But first of all, part of the issue is there are there is, in my opinion, there is enough vaccine currently available right now. The problem is actually getting it because you can't just go to the pharmacy and get the vaccine. You can't just call up your doctor and get the vaccine. They have to put in a request that has to go through the national stockpile. You have to know the United States has been hoarding smallpox vaccines for years. So there is a stock of it. However, it's very hard to get to, and they're doing a very poor job at mobilizing it. But we also have to know that this is not going to be a universal vaccine campaign again. We need to really target it onto the people who would benefit the most from it. But it is messaging, messaging, messaging. The smallpox outbreak started right before Pride Month. And overwhelmingly, it has been transmitting between males. homosexual males or men who have sex with men. But just like HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases, if you have an infected male and they have sex with a woman, it can go male to woman. But right now, it does seem to be um, spreading amongst men who have sex with men. And so that needs to be the messaging. And they should have come down hard before Pride Month, before all of the gatherings, and really – gotten the message what are the symptoms what do you do and so as long as people are not stigmatized they're not afraid about it but at the end of the day there are symptoms it's not asymptomatic transmission for the most part that's occurring. Um, people just need to be aware of what to look for they need to know that they cannot have any sort of physical contact with someone if they are infected and then yeah it doesn't have to it doesn't, to have, to, it
0: doesn't have to be necessarily sexual although overwhelmingly it has been sexual contact overwhelmingly among men sexually. And now in the U.S., there are more than 5,000 confirmed cases. And my point has been just tell us the truth. Do it candidly. Don't worry about all the political correctness and social stuff. But it seems like a lot of public health is now about politics. And that's what's been very frustrating. And I would love to see a lot more vaccine targeted to the prioritized communities as soon as possible. But based on this post story, it might be a while at least until there's a big new influx of vaccine available beyond what you just talked about. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, we've got to leave it there for now. A lot that we covered here, as you are now back from vacation. We're sorry that you had to walk away from vacation, but we're glad to have you back on The Guy Benson Show, as always, doctor.
1: Thanks for having me, Guy.
0: Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Stay with us. U.S. Senator Pat Toomey coming up in the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour on a Monday on The Guy Benson Show, sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. I had a few last weekend. TheLongDrink.com to figure out where it's sold near you. Also, perhaps to order online. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free of charge, on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Also on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. Show. I want to open this hour by reading to you From a story at Reason.com by Robbie Suave, who's been on the show before. And this goes to a phenomenon that we have covered multiple times on this program. There is an entire industry, a little cottage industry, known as the fact-checking industry. And these people take it upon themselves to separate, at least ostensibly, fact from fiction. And what they say their goal is, what they say their purpose is, the raison d'etre, Of the fact checking establishment is to inform the American people of what is objectively true and what is not, and blow the whistle when someone or anyone, especially in the realm of politics, is lying about something or distorting the truth or spreading misinformation. That is what they claim to do. And they do, I would say, a mixed job of it. Some are better than others, all of them are flawed. And I think the problem that a lot of fact checkers get into is they go far beyond basic fact checking to the point that they will often twist themselves into pretzels to rate something as at least partially true, even if it is generally false, if they happen to agree with it and it aligns with their worldview. And these tend to be overwhelmingly center-left or even further-left publications because they are usually populated by journalists and journalists – overwhelmingly or at least heavily these days are activist leftists yes they give Democrats a hard time sometimes but often because they aren't being liberal and progressive enough whereas it is overt war style hostility against Republicans and conservatives whom they don't understand and in many cases hate right that's just the reality now I'm sure I could get fact checked for that and they would call it false even though it is at best disputable. I would say it's true. But we could have a debate about it. There is not necessarily a clear-cut yes or no answer on whether that assessment of the news media is accurate. I would stand behind it. There's a lot of subjectivity. There are shades of gray. There's a difference between opinion that you disagree with and factually false information. Likewise, there's a key difference between opinion, which can be disputed, debated, batted back and forth with points on both sides, and misinformation or disinformation. There have been multiple instances where, let's say, a Republican, member of Congress, or governor, or president, what have you, will make an argument or a statement That is rooted at least partially in fact. And that statement will be reimagined as false or mostly false or pants on fire or 18 Pinocchios by the fact checkers who don't want the Republican to have a point, even if he or she actually does. And you'll sometimes see in this style of fact checking a concession within the analysis that the literal thing That was asserted by the conservative individual is technically factually correct, but within a broader context, dot, 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 they find ways to dock points from the comment in their analysis or just turn it completely around and call it false altogether. This is a trick that we see all the time. One of the worst is a group called PolitiFact. We've talked about them. They are a Democratic campaign arm. They are a progressive, leftist propaganda machine run by a journalism institute, which I think is very much on brand, given the opinion that I gave a moment ago, about journalists, for the most part, in this country and the direction of American journalism. So when PolitiFact dings a Democrat or gives them a false or pants-on-fire rating, you really know that the Democrat has screwed up because PolitiFact generally is in the business of trying to make Democrats look better and Republicans look worse. That's how they typically operate. But occasionally something is so egregious on the left that they will get hit. Now, that whole wind-up, that whole introduction is leading into this Robbie Suave reason piece about another problem I would say, a very serious one, maybe the most serious, within the fact-checking establishment. And that is to take perhaps a controversial or disputed viewpoint or suggestion and to not only say it's disputed or maybe half true or needs more context, but in fact to slap a misinformation label onto it, which is really ramping up the pressure and the criticism of whatever was said. right? It's not just, oh, this is an opinion that you might not agree with and there are some other counterpoints on the other side. No, no, this is misinformation, they claim. Or disinformation. Pick your poison. And just a couple examples off the top of my head that we've seen in the last couple of years that would fall under this category of the abuse of those terms very high-profile, memorable examples are, number one, the Hunter Biden laptop, which has since been authenticated a 100 times over by a bunch of media outlets who belatedly decided that the story was real. But when it was broken, when the story was broken by the New York Post right before the 2020 election, the laptop, its contents, the whole kerfuffle was declared Russian disinformation by the Biden campaign because they didn't want to have to deal with it. By the way, they knew it was real. They must have. But they also knew that their allies in the media would do whatever they told them to do, especially with so much on the line. Just weeks away from potentially defeating Donald Trump, the media was not going to cross the Biden campaign. So the Biden campaign said, this is Russian disinformation. The marching orders were disseminated quickly. And not only was the story ignored by a lot of sources, it was called disinformation, as if that were a fact. And you had some alumni of the intelligence community putting their imprimatur on that same claim, the disinformation smear, which, of course, as we know now, was absolutely wrong. It was not disinformation. It wasn't Russian. It was just real. But without any evidence, it was called disinformation, therefore dismissed, suppressed, throttled and censored. Right before an election, extremely disturbing to me. You don't have to be a big Trump guy or love Rudy Giuliani or be obsessed with Hunter Biden to look back at that episode and say that was really messed up and creepy. The other one, of course, is the lab leak theory on covid, you know. The pandemic that we lived through for two-plus years that totally uprooted our lives and wreaked so much havoc individually and across our society, so much harm. Where did that disease start? How did it get spread in the first place? Where did it come from? There is, I'd say, a very probable chance that it came from a lab inside China in Wuhan, and it leaked out. And Tom Cotton, U.S. Senator, among others, mentioned this as a totally plausible hypothesis and it was attacked as misinformation labeled as such dangerous racist all the things and now here we are all these many months later and it's kind of assumed I'd say in a lot of quarters. Even the polite society ones that were aghast by what Tom Cotton was saying, they're kind of like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe it was. But no, for a while there, misinformation, you could have stuff taken off of social media, you could be frozen out, suspended, whatever, just for saying something or postulating something that is at worst a plausible theory. So this is the side of so-called fact-checking where they put their thumb on the scale based on ideology, based on partisanship, based on whatever they feel is right. And they absolutely, utterly betray the actual definitional purpose of what fact-checking ought to be, and it's why so many people don't trust these organizations, especially the ones that are particularly egregious, like PolitiFact. So this is the latest example, and I would say it's right up there on my list. We spent a lot of last week talking about the definition of recession, leading into Thursday's data, then on Thursday and Friday, and how the White House started to rethink what does a recession really mean? How do we use that word? Forever, it was two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Then all of a sudden, never mind, let's get a bit more nuanced. There's no nuance if that definition that we've used forever hurts Republicans. Then it's like put it in a banner headline in the biggest type font you can find. Splash it in your graphics all over TV. That's the word of the day. But if it could be bad news for the ruling party when it's your party, I'm talking to journalists here because they're almost all Democrats, when it's your party that could be hurt by this, then the spinmeisters from the White House can start to just impose a new definition, or at least call into question and say, let's rein in, let's reel back the definition that we've all collectively been using for like a century. And a lot of people are eager to salute immediately and change the rules, just shift the goalposts in the middle of the game to help the Democrats. And thus, Robbie Suave at Reason writes this, Facebook and Instagram posts flagged as false for rejecting Biden's recession wordplay oh yeah they're going there it's mind-blowing details next
2: fresh conservative talk guy benson show
0: it's the guy benson show we're back and the so-called fact checkers are at it again So the parent company of Facebook and Instagram is called Meta and their third party fact checkers have now flagged as, quote, false information posts on Instagram and Facebook, accusing the Biden administration of changing the definition of recession in order to deny that the U.S. economy has entered one. This is yet another reminder that the project of purportedly independent fact checking on social media is a highly partisan one in which legitimately debatable opinions are passed off. As objective truth or as objective falsehood, I would add. Suave writes, last week, the White House published an online article disputing the standard definition of an economic recession, i.e. two consecutive fiscal quarters in which GDP growth was negative. And we talked about this blog post that the White House put up at whitehouse.gov. It was their pre-spin ahead of the recession report on Thursday. Suave writes, that post has been widely shared and, in some cases, mocked on social media, including from me. We mocked it here, as we should have. Graham Allen, an Instagram personality, posted a video reacting to the post, the White House post, in which he asked Siri to define the term recession. Siri's definition was two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. So he just said, hey, Siri, what is a recession? We got the definition back from Siri. This guy, an Instagram personality, posted that on social, and that video has now been flagged as false. Allen's video is currently obscured on Instagram. Users can watch it, but they first have to click past a disclaimer that it supposedly contains, quote, false information reviewed by independent fact checkers. A similar label has appeared on some Facebook posts that also take issue with the Biden administration's wordplay. By the way, the independent fact checker in question here being used by Facebook and Instagram is PolitiFact, a fact checking website run by the Pointer Institute. So PolitiFact has rated as false the claim that, quote, the White House is now trying to protect Joe Biden by changing the definition of the word recession. PolitiFact says that claim, that statement is false. Let me read it to you again. The White House is now trying to protect Joe Biden by changing the definition of the word recession. PolitiFact says false. PolitiFact works with Facebook and Instagram. Therefore, people using a long-established definition across the media, across the partisan spectrum, people who use that old definition, I would say the current real definition that is disputed by partisan Democrats, those people are getting flagged for false information on the social media platform. It is Unbelievably Orwellian. It reminds me, as I said last week, of the whole episode where Amy Coney Barrett used the term sexual preference during her confirmation hearings. What was it in 2020? And overnight, Merriam Webster Dictionary added the term offensive to their definition of sexual preference because people wanted it to be offensive, wanted to hit Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation. So the dictionary literally changed the definition overnight in order to fit a left-wing narrative. Here we have fact-checkers saying that to defend the forever definition, basically, of a recession on Facebook or on Instagram is now dangerous and false and needs a disclaimer and caveats Because PolitiFact has decided it is false to say that the White House is doing this to protect Joe Biden. Now, you can argue that they're doing it for any number of reasons. I would perhaps say that the White House trying to protect the president by changing this word is obviously correct. They are doing it. That's why they're doing it. It is their motive. It's what they're up to. It's not subtle. But even if you want to say, all right, guy, that's your opinion. Maybe you can Deduce that, maybe you have surmised that, but it's not verifiably, objectively true. I could say, okay, fine. But it is a completely reasonable opinion to have. And yet it has been deemed false by PolitiFact and therefore not permissible without a warning label for false or misinformation on these huge social media platforms. That is very disturbing. Simply telling the truth based on a long-established definition and mocking people for changing the definition has been turned on its head as the truth-tellers now being the ones who are spreading falsehoods. And the parsing, spinning, redefiners are the new arbiters of what counts as accuracy. It's just amazing. I am not an advocate for a bunch of regulation of social media. I think that there would be... Backfires. I think there would be all sorts of unintended consequences for some of the solutions, quote unquote, that some conservatives have talked about. But sometimes it really does feel like some of the big tech companies are just itching to get regulated and allying themselves with PolitiFact and very much becoming propagandists. That's what this is. It's not going to win them. Too many favors, even with conservatives like myself who are skeptical of more regulation, because this is egregious. So, slow clap for PolitiFact and Meta. They've outdone themselves. And you can add this one to the list that I ticked through during the segment. This example is perhaps as bad as the other big ones because it's so blatant. It's not subtle at all. I guess for that, I'm grateful. It's right in front of us. It is undeniable. And I'm sure that would be rated as false. Because that's how they roll. Our definitions of the truth do not change. On the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. Let's bring you a Fox News alert. This just coming across, Fox now confirming as well some other reports that a senior al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who's a name that many people who lived through 9-11 remember very well, he has been killed in a U.S. drone strike. President Biden is expected to address this issue this evening around 7 p.m. Eastern. We will watch that and have that for you. But a pretty significant development in the ongoing, still, war against terrorism. And one of the major players in 9-11 era Al-Qaeda and beyond has now reportedly been taken off the battlefield permanently in a U.S. drone strike. And that is positive news certainly from my perspective i think from the perspective of nearly all americans joining us now is u.s senator pat toomey a republican of pennsylvania a lot to get to with him senator welcome back to the show good to have you
7: thanks very much for having me guy
0: just very quickly your reaction to that breaking news
7: uh great news i mean great news to uh to take that unrepentant terrorist who would love to strike, would have loved to strike America again, uh, take him off the battlefield permanently. And it's encouraging that uh, we uh, retain the ability to do that in Afghanistan and the willingness. So good news.
0: Meanwhile, a lot of men and women who have fought against terrorists abroad in the Middle East—they are the focus of a controversy: their health care the focus of a controversy in Washington, D.C. over these last couple of days. High decibel, high octane, a lot of passion and anger, and understandably so given what's at stake. But you have sort of been one of the Republicans prominently pushing back against some of the demagoguery directed at Republicans in the Senate. You guys blocked the advancement of the so-called PACT Act, which will provide hundreds of billions of dollars in health care, Uh, you know, coverage to veterans who were exposed to toxic burn pits during their service abroad, on duty, active duty abroad. And I know the critics are saying this is, you know, blood on your hands, incredibly callous of the Republicans playing political games. And you obviously take a very different perspective. You've been trying to explain what really is the issue here. If you could just take a moment and explain the reality to our audience that would be great
7: yeah and I appreciate the opportunity to do that guy Um, I I would uh, characterize our vote the other night a little bit differently I would simply say that Republicans voted to insist on the opportunity to offer an amendment and uh, and I put it that way in large part because the vast majority of us support the PACT Act we fully support it Um, so just to be clear uh, I like the big majority of my colleagues, support all the funding, all the criteria, all the eligibility. There's there is nothing in the substance of the benefits for veterans, the new benefits, both in health care and for disability payments. There's nothing that I object to in that place. I don't object to it being in mandatory spending. I don't object to the amount. And if my amendment were to prevail, which I hope it will, there will not be one penny less spent on any veteran for any reason at all. So, so that, I think it's important to get that clear up front. But you know what happens in this town more often than I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to have witnessed is Congress loves to take a sympathetic population, it could be children with a particular illness, it could be victims of crime, it could be veterans who are exposed to toxic chemicals, craft a bill, that deals with those circumstances and then stick in some completely unrelated thing that they know could never pass and then dare Republicans to raise an objection because we know if we do object, they will stick their allies in the media and whatever pseudo celebrity to go out and make up complete some cases, blatant lies and accuse us of being unsympathetic to the sympathetic group. That's what's going on here. So what is the offending provision? The offending provision is a change in the budget rules that will allow future Congresses to go on a spending spree, totally unrelated to veterans. Uh, uh, it, it could reach $400 billion over the next 10 years, and they want this change in budget rules so that it'll grease the skids for those for that spending. They, they don't specify in advance what that spending will be. We, there's no way of knowing, <clears throat> but they wanna change the budget rules, And there's no need for it. There's no justification for it. Uh, They're just doing it to make it easy to spend still more money. So all I want to do is change the PAC Act so that we won't have this unrelated change in the budget rules and keep everything that's there that's meant for veterans.
0: So the Democrats are saying you guys don't care about veterans or you hate veterans, you know, yeah. all the. By, by right.
7: day, the way, the Republicans in the Senate who are veterans voted with me. OK.
0: Right. But but the turbocharge rhetoric is all, you know, lit on fire right now. John Stewart, the comedian, the activist on some of these issues. Uh, he has been one of the loudest voices in this. He was on ABC yesterday saying that you're wrong on the facts. Cut 23. Here's what he said.
3: The Toomey Amendment doesn't change it from mandatory to discretionary. It's still mandatory. The Toomey Amendment is really about capping the fund. It's about putting caps on it and giving it a sunset clause for 10 years. Now, we've been through this with the 9-11 first responders. What Toomey's amendment wants to do is make sure that our sick and dying veterans have the pleasure that our 9-11 first responders at Ground Zero had of having to come back to Washington hat in hand, riddled with cancer, and marched through the halls of the hill begging for money every year. They want them to have that play. It but Toomey's amendment, it's still mandatory. There's been no change.
0: Senator, that is John Stewart's interpretation of what you're trying to do. Is he right?
7: No, it's just completely dishonest. I mean, it's just so wrong, it's ridiculous. First of all, it does change from, uh, it goes back to the, instead of the making the, spending certain categories of spending mandatory i move it back to discretionary but here's the thing where he's just being so dishonest my amendment if adopted doesn't change a penny of spending what, what it, it there there's no end to the program in 10 years that is a complete a completely made up the the what what all of this fund is The change is just in government accounting. It's how we account for it. If we call it discretionary spending, then there's limits to other categories. We're not talking, no limits to the veteran spending. If we call it mandatory, Other spending. then we don't have those limits. And so it's not about limiting spending on this program. The PACT Act never goes away under my amendment. It doesn't diminish by a penny, not this year, not 10 years from now, not 50 years from now. It, it's This is totally made up, and it's it's unfortunate that it's gotten any traction at all.
0: Okay, so one argument that I've heard— And I made this point on Fox News Sunday yesterday, exactly what you're saying. And I said if the Democrats and their allies here were really interested in helping the veterans and securing this funding and getting it done, they would just allow a vote on your amendment, which has nothing to do with the funding in question. There would be a vote, and they would get final passage of the PACT Act probably with 80, 90 senators overall. If that's what they wanted to do, they could do it. It's a very simple fix. It's a tweak that is not germane to the actual subject at hand here. If they want instead to not listen to you and pretend that Republicans just have a secret animus for veterans, including, as you point out, Republicans who are themselves veterans and score a bunch of political points, I guess they can continue to hold the whole thing up and rely on fabrications like we just heard there from Jon Stewart. One of the counterpoints that at least holds some water to me is that back, I believe, in June... A bunch of Senate Republicans, not you, you've been consistently raising this issue, but a few dozen Senate Republicans voted for a version of this that included the poison pill, and now all of a sudden they're against it. Is that a fair knock? And and what's the deal with this pledge that Schumer made that apparently he's now reneged on, which seems quite relevant to all of this?
7: Well, that's exactly it. That's what was going on. So back in June when I was objecting to this, uh, we were promised that we would have an amendment vote. So when you're promised you're going to have an amendment vote, you say, okay, so we're going to have a chance to make our case. We're going to have a chance to to litigate this on the Senate floor. We'll have a debate. We'll have the vote. And you start to prepare to uh, launch this campaign to persuade your colleagues of what's going on here. And then, lo and behold, before we had a chance to do any of that, it goes right to a vote. The idea uh, of this uh, offensive provision, this change in the budget rules, was not – well known at all, it was not well understood. It was not socialized among Republican senators, and so people, as I said all along, they, you know, a big majority of us support the Pact Act, and they were not focused on this other thing. Um, so, I have focused their attention on this problem, and uh, a very large majority of Republicans who support the Pact Act don't support using it as a way to hide this unrelated spending spree. And uh, that's why uh, we had the vote last week to allow an amendment to occur. And so I'm hope. and, and by the way, they could have fixed this and a Schumer, month ago.
0: Schumer that, promised it, right? And it's a pretty, it sounds to me, I'm not an expert, but it sounds like a pretty easy fix. You just deal with this one element. It has nothing to do with the actual funding for the veterans and their health care. And then this thing would sail through with 85 votes.
7: Well, the bill would. Yeah, my amendment might right. not. But you know, I right. can't control that. I mean, I'll make my argument. I may, I may win. I may lose. And that takes about uh, 45 minutes, you know, to go through that vote, and then you go on to final passage. But. That, you know, so so that's how fast this could be resolved. This could have been resolved more than a month ago, could have been resolved last week. I mean, it, the Democrats have chosen not to, and I think it's, as you point out, they're making this calculus. You know, um, how, are they winning politically? Are they scoring more points? And so, um, you know, unfortunately, that's the choice they're making.
0: Can I ask you this? Let's say you finally get the vote, and I've seen a few senators with some rumblings that maybe this is going to happen and it'll get resolved. If you get the vote on your amendment... It might pass. It might not. If you get your opportunity to build the case and have the vote, and you lose the vote, even though I think it makes sense, what would you do on ultimate passage of the PACT Act?
7: Well, uh, if I lose the vote, it'll probably pass with 85 votes. I would probably be one of the few against it out of uh, my, you know, to uh, res- reflect my objection to this provision. If w- if I win, I'm going to vote for the bill because I support the pact act um but uh yeah if it wins I'll vote for it if uh, if I lose I probably vote against it
0: and you think even if the amendment fails and I hope it doesn't but if it does you still think having the opportunity to go on the record wanting to make the change would be enough to have a lot of your republican colleagues come out and overwhelmingly pass this thing on a bipartisan basis because no one hates veterans well,
7: of course not and and you know people my colleagues uh, I think most of my Republican colleagues, vast majority, think that I'm right on the substance of my argument that they should not have snuck this in, uh, that we should not be greasing the skids for future spending sprees. But if we lose that fight on the floor, my guess is most of them will will vote uh, in favor, despite for the their funding. preference. Got it. To, for, yeah, yeah. So that's about it. Irrespective of how my amendment turns out, this is going to pass with a huge vote. That's what's going to happen as soon as the Democrats decide they want it to happen.
0: And Schumer just needs to unbreak his word and allow the vote to happen on the amendment. Senator, 30 seconds, your thought on this Schumer-Mansion plan with the tax increases and the spending that they're going to call anti-inflationary.
7: It's a terrible mix. Look, the tax increases undo one of the most constructive features that we had in the 2017 tax reform, which is allowing companies, especially manufacturers, to recognize the expense they incur in the year they incur it. They So they got a big tax increase that's mostly on manufacturers. Uh, price controls on prescription drugs. They're using this for all kinds of corporate welfare directed at green energy. Oh, I mean, just, and, it's
0: just a mess throughout all of it. And, of course, they're going to raise spending during inflation and raise taxes during recession. It's, to me, crazy, and it sounds like Senator Toomey is a hard no on that package, and I would wholeheartedly agree with him. Senator Toomey, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Two quick factor follow-ups on some stories we've been following at The Guy Benson Show. Number one, a dude actually did agree to get that giant subway tattoo to get subs for life. Remember, it had to be 12 inches, I think 12 by 12. And a man named James Kunz went and got it. And it is green and yellow and black and enormous across his back. It says, Subway Series 2022 with the logo. And I guess that will now entitle him to a lifetime of free Subway sandwiches. But that will be on his body forever. So congratulations, question mark. Meanwhile, the Powerball number, the big Mega Millions, whatever they're calling it, there is a winner. And all we know publicly is that it was sold, the ticket, a single ticket that was the winner of the whole jackpot, was sold in Illinois at a Speedway gas station. And further details are unknown. But our hypothetical conversation on the show last week: what would you do, I guess after taxes, with over one billion dollars, seven, eight hundred million dollars? That is not a hypothetical all of a sudden for someone in Illinois. Congratulations. I would say, number one, get the hell out of Illinois based on their taxes. Just relocate. Save as much of that money as you possibly can. But congratulations and beware the pitfalls of a sudden windfall like that, but that's still pretty exciting. Wyatt bought his ticket. He was in it. He didn't win it, but someone apparently has, and that's all the info that we're going to have, it seems, for a while. I saw one headline saying we might not ever know the identity of the winner, and if that were me, I would definitely not want my identity to be known. I'd want that to be as private and locked down as possible. Finally, this is related to another topic that we were on last week during the home stretch. Fox Business has a story. Headline this. Career challenge. Should you stay in touch with your job while you're on vacation? And because we went long with Senator Toomey, we don't have time to get into all of this. But, oh, believe me, we will. Tomorrow, the next day, perhaps Producer Christine is back from vacation, and I think it's safe to say we know her position on this question. Should you stay in touch with your job while on vacation? And the answer from Christine is no, because even when we asked her for a very short vacation update during home stretches, which Wyatt has participated in, Christine booked him for that not long ago. When it was her turn, just nothing. Got nothing back. Not available. Mama's on a boat or whatever, multiple days. So now she's allegedly back from vacation, although we haven't heard from her today. Christine, are you even there? Or are you on a boat?
1: I am back, and I'm ready to go, Guy Benson.
0: Okay. Well, I would like you to think about your excuses for why you snubbed us. We were thinking about going Kim Strassel on you last week and calling you at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning, quote, by accident. (laughs) Not realizing what the time zone was in New Hampshire, even though it's the same time zone we're in. But you were just a hard no, could not be bothered, and we will have to press you on that in due course, perhaps tomorrow.
1: I'm ready. I'm ready. And I just want to let you know one thing. I did not get a tattoo because I decided I'm waiting for the Benson Retreat. I want to do it with my best friends.
0: Well, we were going to ask you about the tattoo, actually, and now I guess that drama is over. You didn't get the tattoo Let's maybe have that conversation separately as well. We're up on the clock anyway, but we've got a packed agenda for the upcoming home stretches because there's a lot to get to with producer Christine, who is at least technically back on the job after a week of vacation in which she was very much not in touch with her, quote unquote, best friends here at the Guy Benson show back here tomorrow on the program. 3 to 6 Eastern. We will talk to you then. In the meantime, have a great night and thank you for listening.
2: The Fox News Rundown. A contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.